For this is the will of God, <clears throat> your, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in, in this matter, because the Lord <clears throat> is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is, this is God's word. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Matthew Rojek. I'm one of the elders here. It's great to have you guys. I know JD said welcome, but I see some new faces I don't think I've met before, but just wanted to say, Julia, good to see you. Uh, you guys are welcome. Uh, love, love having you here. Um, this is a pretty sensitive thing we're talking about. Uh, and so I just want to encourage the parents, you know, to consider what we're going to, what, what your kids are going to hear. Okay. Uh, not going to be explicit by any means, but there are things that we're going to talk about that again, uh, dealing with the nature of sexual impropriety. So, uh, if you guys would open up with me in prayer, please. Lord God, we just come before you in Jesus name. Lord, thank you for such great worship songs that we can know who you are, what you've done for us that you've created in us, Father God, a longing and a yearning for you to worship you in holiness and fear and reverence, to be encouraged by you. Lord, may your words today speak life to the congregation. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that uh, my pride be set aside, that I speak clearly, definitively, and with boldness, Lord God, that your kingdom might be edified, glorified, and that we might make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we're going through Thessalonians, one thing I wanted to mention that Pastor Eric wanted me to make sure I, I told you guys. Thanks, Jim. Um, chapters 1 through 3 so far have been narrative. Paul's just telling a story. He's having conversation with the Thessalonians. And today, chapters 4 and 5, we're talking chapter 4, 1 through 8, really begins a transition into what's called indicative and imperative. And indicative is just fact-telling. And imperative is authoritative commands. And you guys are going to see this as we're going, again, going back to chapters 1 through 3. Paul talks of their faith of being well-spoken of. Remember when he says, man, Warren, Gross Point, Dearborn, they've heard of your faith. And it's come back that I've heard that your faith is growing. Of how Paul first came to them, how they received the word of God, not as Paul's word, but as God's word. And that Paul's toil and labor of love. And they're accepting his words as not those just of a mere man, but of God himself. And how Paul longed to see their faces and so in doing so, he said, man, I sent Timothy so that he could come back and tell me because I longed to see you when I was unable to. And now, man, from four and five, we see a whole different conversation. Paul says, this is how you're to walk. This is God's will, your sanctification. Abstain from sexual immorality. Controlling your own bodies. And later on, he talks about living quietly. But these are commands from Paul, from Jesus Christ. 
And we're going to take verse 1 and kind of break it down in a couple of passages. So if you would go with me. We urge, or we ask, and we urge you in the Lord Jesus. Now there's three things I want to hit here. Paul says this not only for, uh, I'm sorry, not just for clarity. The point of repetition is not just for clarity, but that there's a strong set of admonitions coming later on. So you guys know, most of you guys know my grandchildren live with us, so we've got three small grandsons. And a lot of times I'll say to them, while I'm instructing them, did you hear me? And they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, did you understand what I said? And then uh, second to last, I'll say, then repeat back to me in your own words so that I know that you know what I said. And then lastly, what do you guys think I'll say? You guys understand if you don't do it this way, there's going to be consequences. That's what Paul's doing. Paul says, I ask. That's a, just a general ask. And then what happens when he says he urges? And then what's the last thing? Man, he comes in with a hammer. In the name of Jesus Christ, I'm speaking. So I've been trying to think of someone that everybody would recognize. Let's just say, does everybody in here know who Bill Gates is? Okay, Bill Gates started Microsoft, gazillionaire, genius. Let's say you worked for Microsoft, and your boss came to you and said, uh, hey, Matthew, I'd really like you to do this, okay? And then an hour later, he comes back, he says, hey, Matthew, I want to urge you to do this. And then lastly, what's he going to say? Got an email from Bill himself. Matthew, you got to do this. That's what Paul is doing here. Ask, urge, and then the hammer comes down. Recently, uh, let me go back. So again, we're talking about transitioning from narrative on to Paul's authoritative commands. And I want to encourage you guys to think back through chapters 1, 2, and 3 there's something that Paul did that I found really interesting, and that is, remember, Eric has said a number of times, he was with them three Sabbaths. A lot of the people that he spoke to in Thessalonica were not of Jewish descent. They were Gentiles. So chances are, they really didn't even know who Paul was. So I'm going to tell you a number of things. Uh, recently, I met with someone, and I said, hey, I, I got to meet with you. I, I heard something that really troubles me. So we met, and I said, hey, uh, I heard you said this. And I got to tell you, man, it really hurt my heart because I was surprised that you didn't come to me first. And in the middle of that conversation, you know what he said to me? He says, man, I thought you knew me better than that. Of course I would have come to you first. What you heard was wrong. And I've known this person for a while. And immediately in my mind, I thought, yeah, I, I knew that. I knew that that was unlike this person's character. Now, the Thessalonians, they don't know Paul. So what does Paul do? Again, if you go through verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, Man, I came to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure that that was two-pronged. Man, preaching a hard gospel that in three weeks, there was great salvation. Okay? But I could almost guarantee you that it was also with signs and wonders, miracles and supernatural, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then what does Paul say next in verse uh, chapter 2-2? He says, man, 
I came in the state of being persecuted like you guys were, shamelessly treated. He says, but how did I act? Man, I acted in boldness. I acted in boldness coming to you because guess what? I'm not a man pleaser. I please God. Think of the character that Paul's talking about. He's not a man pleaser. He's a God pleaser. Man, that dude is strong. And then what does he say after that in chapter uh, 2-7? Like a nursing mother. I mean, think of how many little babies we've got in here. And I mean, over the last year, we've had a bunch of babies. And you see a young mother holding her infant, nursing that baby that she's carried for nine months in her womb. That's what Paul's saying. Man, I birthed you. And as a nursing mother longs and cherishes and cares for her child, so I care for you. As a doting father, most of you guys aren't old enough now, but I mean, Pastor Leon, Alvin, you guys see your kids and you say, that's my boy, that's my girl. They're, they're living after God or they're doing something right that you honor them. And lastly, man, in a variety of times, Paul says, man, longingly I wanted to come to you. Anxious to see you, to hear of your faith. Time and time again, I wanted to come to you. So through the chapters one through three, Paul is saying, this is who I am. I want you guys to know that because now we're going to get in the thick of things. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 in the middle of it says, Paul says, how you ought to walk and please God. Obedience is, and I would say, the only expression of genuine faith. Obedience is the only expression of genuine faith. You want to know that you're living a sanctified life? You want to know that you're born again? Are you obeying God's commands? Sure way to tell. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, a little bit further along. Paul says, just as you are doing. And this is just a positive reinforcement by Paul that he's telling the Thessalonians, hey, I know what you guys are doing. I've seen it, and I've heard firsthand your walk of faith. Paul wants to encourage them here. In the last part of 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, he says, that you do so more and more. Here begins the imperatives, the authoritative commands. And Paul's doing a number of things here. If you think about it, he's saying, hey, guess what? This is not a one-shot deal. I didn't just bring the word of God. You guys heard, made some commitment, started living right for a week, And then all of a sudden you moved on from there. It's not a one-shot deal. Paul also understands that old habits die hard. And he's, again, he's addressing a mixed group of Gentiles and Jews. But again, think about it from a Gentile's perspective. They don't even have the background of a Jew who at least understands that there's a God that we answer to that's a holy God and a point of uh, reverence. So they didn't even have that. And he's speaking to them. And again, if you guys are interested, 1 Corinthians 5.17 talks about this. If anyone is is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then the entire chapter of Romans 8 talks about living by the Spirit. 
Paul also saying, do it more. Practice makes perfect. You know, how many of us here exercise? Probably most of us, one way or another, we have some kind of form of exercise. You're building new, what I call muscle memory. You're building new spiritual muscle memory. You got Gentiles, you got Jews who didn't know about Jesus, and all of a sudden they hear this thing called the gospel, and up until now they've been living a certain way, spiritually speaking, and now all of a sudden Paul brings a new message, and they've got to exercise these new spiritual muscles. And that's not always an easy thing to do, but practice can make perfect. And you guys have heard this before. If we're not in a state of progression, chances are we're in a state of digressing, or at best, we're in a state of stagnation. Paul says, hey guys, heard what you did, saw what you did, you know what I told you to do, right on, I love that you're doing it, but guess what? Keep on doing it. And then the other thing is, do we quit after mastering first grade? Of course we don't. When I turn 60 in about four months, five months, do I get a, yeah, yeah. Do I get a check mark that says, sanctified, done, no more working at it? Of course not. Man, I, uh, I would hate for that to be the case in my mind. But in verse 3, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now the sanctification that's spoken here by Paul is defined as the gift of process. The gift of process by which believers, through the power of the Holy Spirit, change grow and seek via obedience to walk in and increase in holiness. Now there's two sanctifications that the Bible talks about. At the point in time that you chose to follow Christ, that you were born again, that you were saved, whatever terminology you want to use, at that point in time, God placed his hand on your head, said, Michael Fang, you're sanctified. Boom. Michael Fang was holy. He was pure in God's eyes. It's like the lens of Jesus Christ got in between God and Michael Fang, and God saw Christ. He saw Michael Fang, but he saw Christ through the blood of Christ, sanctified. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is, again, I said obedience is the only genuine expression of faith. And that's what Paul's talking about here. I'm urging you, God's will is your sanctification, where in a practical sense, we are walking in a life that as we exercise our spiritual muscles, we're becoming holier. Holier in our conversation and kindness. Remember last week Eric talked about every one of us has been given the gift of love. And if we allow that love to permeate who we are, our conversation changes. I'll tell you what, my conversation between uh, the, the night before I got saved and the day I said the sinner's prayer, whole different ball game. Not only did God sanctify me and give me like full uh, righteousness, but I'll tell you what, he changed me. And praise the Lord, he continues to change me to this day. I want you guys, man, please hear me, because this is, this is important. 
sanctification is not optional. And it has a bearing on our eternal life as evidenced by the scripture. And I'm not mincing words here. These are words out of the scriptures. These are not my words. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Do you guys see what that's saying? The end of sanctification is eternal life. If you're not sanctifying, be wary, be fearful. Matthew 5.30, if your right hand causes you to, be, uh, to offend, to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body should go get cast into hell. Now I think probably a lot of you guys know what hyperbole is. Hyperbole is exaggeration. And that's what happens here in the first part of that scripture that Jesus speaks. We don't think that he wants us to cut our arm off and throw it away. But the second part is not hyperbole. He says it's better that you cut off an offending member that continually causes you to sin instead of you going to hell. Those are Jesus' words. And I really want you guys to taste that. I want you to taste the seriousness of that. We are in a fight for our spiritual lives every day. We witness it in most of the prayer requests we hear. We're in a fight for our spiritual lives. Verse 3b, Paul says, Man, this is God's will for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I want to take a little break here and say, oftentimes as Christians, to our detriment, we look at one sin as being elevated against others. And I want us to all be wary of that. We're going to hit sexual immorality, but there are many sins that we're involved in, that I'm involved in, that are not sexual immorality, that we got to be cautious, that we don't elevate that to such a level that we don't even want anything to do with those people. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? Lying is just as bad. Things that are deceitful and hidden are just as bad. So let's not, I mean, we're going to focus on that today, but let's be cautious in our treatment of people that we don't elevate their sin above ours. How many here were a sinner before you got saved? Yeah, you better all raise your hands. So this conversation today is all about sanctification. And Paul's reinforcement of him saying, hey, you guys remember what I told you? Cool, I hear you're doing it. I'm proud of you. I want you to keep doing it. So we're talking about sanctification today. Right off the bat, and young people, I want you guys to hear me as well, please. Sex is a wonderful gift from God himself. Sex is great in the proper setting. 
just like anger is not sin in of itself, but it can be when it's misused, sex in and of itself is a gift from God, but it can be misused. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Verses 4 and 5, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Self-control led by a pure motivation leads to holiness. Now, we've all heard plenty about um, scribes and Pharisees and them doing the right thing but that it being wrong because their heart is wrong, right? So that's why I added self-control led by pure motivation of love for our king, of humility before our king, of thankfulness and gratefulness to our king is going to lead to holiness. And then he goes on to say, not in passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So my exhortation to you, live like you know God. Live in obedience. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. The sin of sexual immorality is a sin against both God, as we're going to see in chapter 8, and in man, versus man in verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 8, verse 6. I do want to briefly discuss identity. Eric really encouraged me to do so. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and had no shame whatsoever. When did shame come? After they chose disobedience. And all of a sudden, whoa, they recognized where they were at. And shame came. We've all heard this, but like I am so appalled by what is on the media and what we see in newspapers. Betty and I went to Einstein's this morning and I walked by a very wonderful little beautiful boutique in Gross Point. I mean, real classy place. And one of the mannequins, the shoulder of the woman's dress was hanging off. And I'm thinking, why do you have to do that? I'm not a big TV watcher. You know, I watch a little bit, read the newspaper. And when you look at what happens at the awards ceremonies, it's like the emperor's new clothes. It's ridiculous what, forgive me, but women do to be provocative. They keep taking it one step further. How much further? So I want to tell you, none of us are ever going to live up to that. I don't care how beautiful or handsome you are. I don't know how great your physique is, or woman, or women, how shapely your body is. We'll never live up to that, because the bar continues to raise. And I can guarantee you, the things that they are pursuing are not of righteousness. Please, find your identity in Christ. He knew you. He knew you before he saved you. And he still saved you. Man, that blows my mind. I was an idiot when the Lord saved me. Uh, you know. 
Comparison among ourselves only wreaks havoc on the individuality that God has created us in and the giftings that he's given us. Please, please, let's use the eyes of the Lord when we're looking at each other and not elevating or pushing aside. Oh, you go sit in the back. That's what the world does, and that's wickedness. Man, please rejoice in the individuality that God has given you. Rejoice in the giftings of who he's made you to be. Man, do not set your affections on those other things. They will not bring satisfaction. So I don't know if you guys have heard, uh, this guy named C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. The book is about a devil named Screwtape, and the entire book is about Screwtape, who has an apprentice, and he's teaching the apprentice how to tempt man, how to mess up man in God's relationship. And there's a quote on page 98 I want to say. Screwtape instructs his apprentice, just as we pick out and exaggerate the pleasure of eating to produce gluttony, and then we twist it into a demand for absolute novelty. I'm going to make a relationship here between that and sex, okay? But, but hear what he's saying. And then this was on a tape by a guy named Ravi Zacharias. Then Ravi Zacharias finishes that and says, what will happen then? It will diminish pleasure, but while increasing desire. Now, to my shame, I love food. I am a food junkie. And in relationship to what I'm reading here, what happens? Man, I have a really good artichoke and chicken pizza. And then there's the temptation to say like, yeah, what? there's got to be something right above that, right? Something a little bit better. Something a little bit better. Something a little bit better. Right? And what happens is my desire is increased. Okay, where else can we go? What's the latest restaurant? Where's, where's the new place? But my pleasure is diminished because it doesn't satisfy. That's what I was saying about that before. Man, I don't care how many muscles you get. I don't care how much of a babes you end up looking like. That pleasure is going to get diminished because you're growing older. There's going to be somebody else better than you or stronger than you or wiser than you or has more of a combination of all those things. So eating, moving on to gluttony, Eating's wonderful, right? I mean, my wife will literally eat a can, open up a can of green beans and eat it out of the can for lunch. She has chosen very often when we're at a restaurant, she won't even try a new food because she knows that she's going to like it and then it's going to give her another option. Just give you guys an example of the difference. So when he says, just as we pick out and exaggerate the pleasure of eating to produce gluttony, or we pick out and exaggerate the pleasure of sex to produce immorality. So now it gets interesting. We're going to have three examples we're going to talk about. Pornography. Jesus says, if you lust, it's the same thing as if you've done the act. 
And I want to tell you, just recently, this was made completely clear to me like it's never been more clear. I'm coming home from work. God's been dealing with me about a particular sin in my life. On the way home from work, I'm all, yep, that's going to happen tonight. I get a phone call. Oh, I forgot about a meeting I have tonight. Oh, I guess I can't sin. Cool. I'm excited that I'm not going to sin, right? Guess what? I already sinned because I had already made the choice to sin. That's what he's talking about here. It didn't matter that I didn't do the act. I'd already been disobedient. God had said no, and I said, you want to bet? I'll do what I want to do. It's not the act. It's the heart of disobedience that we allow when we surrender our will to the wrong pleasure. Because of the secret nature of pornography, transparency just doesn't happen. And rarely. And what ends up happening is there's just a continual cyclic shame and guilt. And man, praise the Lord for the model at Mac where between the discipler and Mac group, we have opportunity, whether we take advantage of it or not, it's a different thing, but we have opportunity to bear our souls to our brothers, to our sisters, confess our sin and say, man, I'm knee deep, I'm, way, I'm neck deep, I'm neck deep, I don't have hope. How do I get out of this? And your brothers and sisters, you know, because you guys have been there, will come alongside you and support you. It seems to be justified because there's no act I think we debunked that lie. Do you honestly think that the women in the videos are experiencing God's image and freedom? Your choice of supporting pornography logistically enslaves them to a virtually inescapable bondage and horror. And I don't say that lightly. And you're selfish, and when I say your selfish desires have given opportunity for sadistically evil men to profit without scrutiny. You know, think about it. You watch the news, some guy gets busted for doing something. What's the first thing he do, does in front of the camera? You don't have to do that with pornography because the guy that's producing this stuff, man, first of all, probably nobody cares. Second of all, he's behind closed doors. They profit without scrutiny, because of us participating in that. Is that what you want to be about? I don't believe so. Fornication. And this is for the singles here. Sex outside of marriage. And I just got to say, men, onus is on us. The onus is on us. We are responsible. Okay? I don't care how much you're enticed. You're the leader that God has given that charge to you and I. And we need to take that with all sincerity. I 
Obviously, women dressing provocatively, provocatively doesn't help. So women, be cautious how you dress. Don't give us more opportunity. We don't need it. We're just visual creatures, plain and simple. Pregnancy can lead to abortion or to a single mom whose life is so utterly potentially destroyed by a man's act of five minutes of selfishness? I mean, think about it. And I don't want to say it's just in this community because we know it's not. But men acting selfishly, taking advantage of a woman, and then he bails, and she's responsible to raise this child financially, spiritually, Without a man's presence, how dare we? How dare we? Adultery. When does it start? It starts when the husband comes home from a long day of work and doesn't look to meet the needs of his wife who's been home alone all day, running after three or four kids, trying to change diapers, trying to make meals, trying to make the budget work. And we're not paying attention to our wives. Men, the onus is on us here. Or the woman goes to the grocery store and because the husband's not been paying attention and some guy in line, hey, how you doing? Starts talking. She says, wow, this dude cares for me. Man, small steps lead to destruction. Be wary. Married couples, may I implore you do not allow the enemy to drive a wedge between you and your spouse when it comes to communication i've told you guys this probably a hundred times i'm gonna tell you again one thing that god has been very gracious with me in i told you guys a hundred times again betty and i have had a knockdown marriage man we have not physically brawled but we have brawled, been married 36 years. And man, I'll tell you, there's been some tough, hard times. Marriage is not for the faint at heart. But I promise you this, if you guys make a commitment to it and you can keep the line of communication open, I would come home from work. My, my business that I own literally was nine-tenths of a mile from my house. There were times I would come home one, two, three times in a single day and say, Bets, please tell me again. I, I don't get it. I, I, like, what am I doing wrong? And I'm telling you, that was a gift. I'm not patting me on the back. I'm saying that was God's gift to me. Please don't allow communication to get to the point that it's stagnated. You can't do that. Humble yourself. Wives, tell your husband what you need. Tell him again. Tell him again. We're stupid. <laughs> Men, tell your wives what you need. Tell your wives what you need. Don't expect them to be mind readers. There is a Niagara Falls type cascading destructive path that follows from these selfish choices. Broken covenant that God mirrors in our relationship with him. Do you think he just does that just because it sounds like a good thing to do? No. Man, he's got some important ideas behind that.
Jesus says, only because of the hardness of your heart does God even consider allowing divorce. Think about broken marriages. Think about wounded hearts. Think about trust being destroyed. Think about our witness as believers. Our track record is the same as the world's. And yet we say, hey, guess what? We got the answer. No, you don't. We're lying. And then if the children are involved, you multiply by at least a tenfold factor. Imagine the blueprint that you've impressed on them. Incredibly difficult and confusing family dynamics. You know, recently I've been involved in two conversations with some friends that we used to know and some other friends where the husband's committed adultery. And I'm relatively amazed, probably shouldn't be, on how the husbands blame it on the wives. Both of the cases. They didn't pony up. Well, she did this. Who cares? I'm just telling you, man, the onus is on us. Think about the financial distress. Mortgages, child support, two family cost differentials. I think most of you guys know my daughter Martha lives with us. Married for seven years, bought a house. Week, month after buying the house, finds out Husband's been cheating on her the whole marriage. He hasn't called the kids in two and a half years, and he's remarried and has a kid. You know what it took for me not to call his fiance? Say, hey, man, run. Run. He's up to, right now, felony of how much money he owes Martha. Think about that. Think about the family dynamics. My grandkids haven't heard from their dad in two and a half years. Think about what he's going to do to the next family. And it just keeps going. And then just think about the residual baggage that happens when we choose those things. Destroyed lives trying to find stability, trying to find hope or reason. Man, God's sovereign. Well, did he allow this to happen? Of course not. Our wicked nature chose that. <clears throat> Verses 6b through 8, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God, who gives the Holy Spirit to you. Do you want God's vengeance on you? Or do we want to live in the power and the freedom afforded us by the cross? Man, Mike, great song selection today. The cross has afforded you and I hope. Are we willing to walk in the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit? That's what the last verse is asking us. Do we want God's vengeance? Because we're disregarding God, not Paul, not Eric, not Leon, not Jonathan, not Alvin, not Matthew. We're disregarding God. So let's just go to the application real quick. 
find a way to chart your sanctification growth because we need to be paying attention to this. Ask your spouse, a friend, your discipler, your Mac group. Set goals where possible. Start somewhere. Start somewhere. Set the TV limit. Determine what you believe God sees as holy. Avoid the rest. And I do want to encourage you, slow and steady wins the race. Slow and steady wins the race. In that same book, The Screw Tape Letters, let's see if I can quote it correctly, Screw Tape says, encourage them in the horror of the same old thing. Encourage them in the horror of the same old thing. You know, Eric and Leon say it constantly. It's not sexy living down here. It's not sexy day after day after day, reading, praying, submitting, humbling, changing diapers, making a thousand lunches, doing the wash. That's boring. That's the horror of the same old thing. But guess what? That's not what we live for. We live for a risen Savior whose charts our lives that we might bring him honor and glory. And we have meaning. Great book if you guys are interested. Practice the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Practice the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Completely deals with this thing. And I got a couple extra copies if anybody wants one. So we're going to do um, take an offering. And uh, we're going to do communion.